0: Good evening, it's uh, amazing, the Lord provides, Uh, it's the second Pastor Crockett message today and I don't feel that tired, it's uh, pretty not too bad, so thank you very much for your help this morning brother, (laughs) wonderful encouragement from God's word today and uh, if you weren't here this morning I would uh, encourage you to uh, chase that message up and uh, get it because it was a a great challenge to each of us. If you take your Bible tonight, I'd like you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, please. We're working through the book of Ecclesiastes on Sunday nights. And we're up to chapter 3 and verse 16, the less famous part of chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 16 through 22. 22. Ecclesiastes 3.16, And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts." For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go unto one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? wherefore i perceive that this is nothing better sorry where i perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works for this is for that is his portion for who shall bring him to see that which shall be after him interesting portion of solomon's musings tonight i trust it will be a blessing to you so let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, already for the encouragement, uh, Lord, from our worship service, Lord, that we can think on you. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the marvelous thought that we can abide in you, uh, that you can be, uh, Lord, the essence uh, of all of the power that we need, of all of the sustenance that we require. And uh, Lord, we thank you that our service can flow forth from your provision. I ask, Lord, tonight that you would bless the preaching I pray also that you would bless those who are listening and I ask that it would be a blessed time for each of us in the house of God tonight as we experience the work of the Spirit. We commit ourselves to you now in your presence and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, we must credit the preacher, who is most probably Solomon, with being willing to be bluntly honest about the things that he contemplates. He explores dilemmas, he explores challenges that are sometimes suppressed by people who don't wish to appear doubters or who wish to appear weak in their faith. He's willing to think about these challenges, he's willing to consider these dilemmas and really ask where in the world does mankind fit and where can we find our answers. We saw at the start of the book of Ecclesiastes that the quest of the book is to find Where is lasting peace? Where is lasting fulfillment, really? And Solomon is looking through each of these things to find out where can fulfillment be found or can it be found in the things of earth? What is the meaning of life? Could be another way that we pose Solomon's question. But as Solomon seeks to go and look and evaluate riches, evaluate pleasures, evaluate some of the different things that are put forward as the most important parts of life, he finds himself being snowballed, weighed down by the dilemmas that just seem to cling to him when he considers the human condition. Uh, in this portion of the scriptures, he's not considering the blessings of life. But as he starts to consider life under the sun, he's starting to think about all of the things that are really difficult for humans upon the earth. And what was really in the beginning, it started start out to try and find the blessings of life, where can we be happy, really becomes an exploration of all of the difficulties of life and some of the things that just cling to us and beg an answer. In this portion that we're going to look at tonight, verses 16 through 22 of chapter 3, the preacher wrestles with two different dilemmas. And our topic tonight or our message is two problems with one answer. So that's a a bit of efficiency, isn't it? You pose two problems, but you can just answer it with one answer. That's even better. Kill two birds with one stone, so they say. The two dilemmas that we're going to have a look at tonight are familiar foes for Christian contemplation. But they're also shields that the unsaved and those who are critics of the scriptures and of the Lord hold up to keep themselves away from faith. Things that people say, these are the reasons why I can't believe in God or why if there is a God, I don't want to accept him as a good God. And so they're quite significant dilemmas and they need to be answered because there are quite serious ramifications. So the first dilemma that we're going to have a look at is started there in verse 16. And I've called it a corrupt mentality. Verses 16 and 17. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. Let's just pause for a moment. At the start of verse 16, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun. Remember that this is a phrase that Solomon uses a number of times throughout this book to talk about the world without the divine perspective. He talks about life under the sun to refer to the the stage of life without contemplating the reward of the hereafter or the influence of heaven life under the sun now he speaks about the place of judgment i moreover saw uh, the sorry and moreover i saw under the sun the place of judgment and this place of judgment is the judgment of the judicial system whatever that might be it is in sometimes a legal representation in other times it's a more societal role that this plays the place of judgment is where judgment takes place it could take place before the court of kings could take place at the jurisdiction of local magistrates it could take place in those in authority positions whether they be leaders or parents or teachers or whatever it might be but the place of judgment is Solomon's focus at this time These places of judgment, as I'm sure you will agree, are places that we rely upon to uphold law and order. We would expect that our court systems should be the place that we can go and find justice. That's why we go there, isn't it? If you're in problem, if you've got a problem, you will call the authorities and seek help, trusting that help is what you're going to find. Solomon's dilemma is that he saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there. The place where justice was meant to be occurring, there was instead wickedness. The place which should have been righteousness, iniquity was there. He finds that there are people in authority who are making intentionally wrong decisions. We might call this corruption people making intentionally wrong decisions or failing to act and oftentimes for selfish motives. The place of righteousness, the place of justice uh, are the same. Uh, It's talking about a place that should be righteous in the implementation of the law or the judicial um, system of a country. Solomon's own experience proved this to be the case. Who was Solomon? Solomon was the son of David and Bathsheba. David, his father, had committed adultery as the king, the prime authority in that country under God. And when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, what did he do? He had her husband killed to cover up the crime. That, my friends, is what we would call corruption. Corruption in Solomon's father and mother, really. Right there, a great example of it, right in his family and examples that he could see all around the world. Now, we remember from Solomon's influence in the area at the time, he had rulers from all different countries coming to him. He had experience with many different countries, not only the heads of countries, but also other rulers in those places. And so he would have had experience with the legal systems of other countries, not just those in Israel. If we think about this idea of corruption, we can stick to the Bible and simply find a number of different examples. I've already um, cited to the example of David, the case of Uriah the Hittite. If we were to skip on a fair few years afterwards, we would come across a... um, horrible couple can't be described as anything different called ahab and jezebel the king and queen of israel ahab looked out his window and decided that he wanted to plant a vegetable garden happened to own happened to be owned by somebody else it was his vineyard Uh, He asked if he could purchase that piece of land so that he could plant a herb garden there. And the man said, no, that's my family allotment. I can't sell it to you. So the king promptly went up to his room and cried on his bed. It's a mature thing to do, isn't it? The queen comes in and says, what are you crying for? You're the king of Israel. You can have anything you want. Leave it with me. And she makes sure that that man is executed so that her husband can have a herb garden. Corruption. Corruption right there in the courts of Israel. And this was Solomon's problem. The place of justice, wickedness is there. Even in the nation of God's own people. Now, I want to try and apply this to our lives, as I think we should, in all parts of Scripture. And it made me really think when it came to Australia. I made this statement, in a way we don't see this in Australia today. And then I agreed with my statement and I came back and I disagreed with it later. Now think about this. When we are in danger and we call triple O, the most important question we have in our minds is how quickly will they get here? Is that not right? It's usually the question. If I'm in trouble and I need to call the police for some reason so that they can come and help me, I'm asking how quickly will they get here to help me out? We don't ask, will they be any help when they get here? We have a wonderful assurance in Australia that the law enforcement agencies that we call upon will do the job they're called upon to do, protect us, try and enforce the law where they can and where it's appropriate for them to do so. We have a wonderful legal system in our country. Now, we've been told that in that police force, corruption has been stamped out, based on my understanding of the nature of mankind, I don't believe that, (laughs) that corruption has been stamped out entirely, but certainly we are in a much better position in our country today when it comes to the legal system, specifically to the law enforcement agency that we have at our disposal. We don't have to bribe police officers in order to get them to act. When I was in Zambia earlier this year, my phone was stolen by someone. And in order for me to report a crime, the police officer in the police station asked me for a bribe. So if you think about the logic of this, they're asking me to commit a crime to report a crime. It's interesting, isn't it? We don't have that in Australia, do we? You don't have to pay a police officer a bribe in order to get justice done. It's a wonderful blessing, but many countries in the world experience that even today. If someone came in and they were threatening your family, you might not have the confidence to call the police. Imagine living in a world like that. Be thankful for the place that you are. What we are seeing, however, in our country at the moment, which made me doubt the question about whether there really is righteousness in the place of judgment, is not secret corruption, but the open legislation of wickedness. Making laws of things that ought to be deemed wicked. Murder of unborn children is being legislated at this present time and if so people will be able to practice that law without fear of any legal redress same-sex marriage has gone through people can practice what God calls wickedness with the full support of the law and magistrates will uphold that Even a long time ago, to some of you who are remembering the legal system of Australia, no-fault divorce. The idea that people can just end a marriage without having a proper reason to do so. In many ways, those in the place of judgment both probably secretly practice corruption, though we don't have to face that so much in Australia today, at least not to our knowledge. But They also openly legislate wickedness. Where we ought to find righteousness, we find wickedness. In the place of justice, we find wicked laws and wicked people judging those laws. But, you know, just as we think about how bad things are in Australia, spear a thought at the moment for those who are seeking the help of the Syrian government, for those who are seeking the help of the Somalian government, those countries in the world where they can't rely upon their government to do what is right by them. This is a problem that is widespread throughout our world, even though it comes in different forms. Solomon's problem still exists in the world and it still exists in Australia. Now Solomon's language suggests to us that this place of justice is not just a legal place, but it's the place where judgments are made that should uphold Righteousness, And so I think it's not just the law courts and systems like that, but any place where we would go to seek justice. Uh, two fighting siblings who might go to their parents to seek something solved. Uh, people in the schoolyard who go and seek a problem to be fixed by the teacher. Wherever it might be where authority is put into place, Solomon says in the place where people should go to find righteousness, wickedness prevails. And we find that still true today. When people go to the boss, oftentimes the boss does the wrong thing consciously. When people go to their parents, their parents might make the wrong decision and they do it out of favoritism to one child or another. Solomon has a problem, and I think we can admit that it is a genuine problem. What he's struggling with is a real thing. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 17 then goes on to say, I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous. And the wicked, for there is a time for every purpose and for every work. I think we need to understand this little phrase here, I said in mine heart. This is sort of Solomon speaking to himself. He has this doubt there's no justice going on when there should be justice going on, so what does Solomon tell himself? Well he encourages himself in these things I said in mine heart or I told myself, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. I encourage myself in this idea, I've tried to get myself thinking right by saying, well, God is going to judge the righteous and the wicked. He will separate between them. I'm glad Solomon brought this up because it's probably what we were all thinking. He says, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Now, notice that little phrase, there is a time there. Doesn't that take us back to the start of Ecclesiastes chapter 3? There is a time to live and a time to die and a time for this and a time for that. Solomon's recalling back to the idea that there is a time when even justice would take place. The problem is, when we remember what Solomon was talking about in those there is a time for this and a time for that, we remember that Solomon is making the statement that this is frustrating to us. There is a time for death and a time for birth, and it doesn't always come at the right time. There is a time for justice, but there shouldn't just be a time for justice. Justice should happen all the time. It shouldn't be a time for justice and a time for wickedness. It should be something that happens all of the time. And often, justice is never done upon the earth. A killer may go through life never being brought to account for the murder that they committed and die, without ever going to jail. It's a terrible thought, and we hate to think that that would ever be the case. We think no justice will catch up with them one day. The truth will come out. But There are many unsolved murder cases that are still there. Many people have gotten away without receiving justice. Now, perhaps Solomon is referring to the final judgment Perhaps he's talking about a time where God brings all people to justice after the time of the resurrection. That could be the case, but I tend to think that his scope here is life under the sun. Life upon the earth, where God is going to bring in a time of judgment. But even then, that time of judgment is not perfect upon the earth. And as we'll see in Solomon's mind, the afterlife is something that he's aware of. But it doesn't seem to be a settled comfort to his mind. And we'll see that in just a moment. And so as Solomon wrestles with his dilemma, he's trying to think, well, hope justice is going to prevail. I'm hoping that justice is going to prevail in this time. But he doesn't really have a proper answer for his problem yet. And upon the heels of that one, the next dilemma ensues. And that's in verse 18. This first dilemma was corrupt Mindfulness, the second dilemma is common mortality. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other yea they have all one breath so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast for all his vanity notice at the start of verse 18 that similar phrase I said in mine heart Solomon's thinking about these things again he's trying to mull over in his mind what is the right answer here what should I tell myself in this situation well I said in mine heart concerning the state of the sons of men that God might manifest them that they might see that they themselves are beasts. Solomon is saying in this verse, the situation with mankind is like this because God is trying to show people that they are just like beasts. God is trying to show people that things are not right upon the earth because he's trying to show them that they're not that different to the animals. Now, perhaps a lack of justice brings Solomon here. Or perhaps he's just thinking about another problem, another reason why life is not fulfilling. But we would argue with Solomon his uh, conclusion that he says in verse 19. He says, For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they all have one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. We would argue with Solomon. We would say, no, 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 we're not just animals. We're more than beasts. We're different to the beasts. But Solomon's three points are true. The three things Solomon brings up are right, and they're scriptural. Let's have a look at them at the start of verse 19. He says, for that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts, even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. One thing happens the same for mankind and for beasts, for animals. They both die. And not only do they both die, but they both die in similar ways. Man is mortal just like the beast. So, how is he any better? He dies just like a beast dies. So, what makes him any different? God uses circumstances to remind us of our mortality. This is Solomon's argument here. And it's good for us to be reminded of immortality. We need to think that we are mortal. We are going to die. And we need to embrace that thought. We are going to die. One commentator brought a uh, um, good illustration of this. He says the Trappist monks have a... A practice that they um, do every time. They dig a grave at the site of their monastery, and it's a nice big grave. And every day they all go out and they stand around the grave and they look into that grave and they think about their own death. And they go out every single day and look into that grave until one of them dies. They bury them in that grave and then they dig another grave. And every day they go out and look at that grave. The practice is that one of them is looking at their own grave every single one of those days. And they're reminding themselves, I am going to die. My life is going to come to an end. And brethren, even as Christians, we need to embrace that thought. I am going to die. And that ought to change the way we live. And so Solomon says that animals and people both die, so their lot is quite similar. His second point for why animals and humans are, share the same lot is that they all have one breath. Notice there in the end of verse 19. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all his vanity. You might say, well, hang on a second, do they all have one breath? Didn't God give a special breath to mankind and not to the animals? Well, let's have a look back in Genesis chapter 1. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2 first, and then we'll go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. A living soul. See, there you go. Isn't that different to the animals? Well, let's have a look. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 24. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. See that those words, the living creature. That in the Hebrew is identical to a living soul. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. It's the Hebrew expression, ka nefesh. Both animals and humans possess those things. Both have one breath and that breath is imparted by God. So they do share one breath. They share the breath that God gave to them to be living creatures. So Solomon's right on two counts. (laughs) They both die. They share a similar sort of death and they both share the same breath that God gave to them. The third thing that Solomon says, let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 19. In their death, in their breath, man is not superior to the animals. Verse 20. And this one's a bit contentious, isn't it? All go unto one place. You would say, well, no, that's not right. (laughs) All don't go unto one place. But he says this, all are of the dust and all turn to dust again. Is he right? He is right. He is right. That was God's promise to mankind after they sinned. From the dust I have taken you, and unto the dust you shall return. Now the remains of humans and beasts are indistinguishable when it comes to dust. You have a look at the amino acids, at the proteins, at everything that makes up the uh, organic Compounds upon uh, that are used to construct both the human and the beastly bodies. They're carbon-based compounds, and they're basically identical. We are made of dust. Now, the question he says is all he makes a statement all go unto one place. Now we're hoping that Solomon's not just going to finish it there, aren't we? We're hoping that he doesn't just say, well, we go to the dust, because we know that the Bible teaches more than just that we go to the dust. Thankfully, Solomon brings this up in verse 21. He says, Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Now, we have to be really careful here. What Solomon is saying is that the spirit of man goes upward, And the spirit of the beast goes downward. At least that's what he's saying we believe. That is the common belief, and it was certainly the common belief in Solomon's time. But did you notice that it's phrased as a question? Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Solomon says that in this time, there is a belief that the body and the soul or the body is similar. The breath goes out of us, but that the spirit goes to be with the Lord or goes upward. But he also makes this point by having it as a question. If it's true, who knows it? Who knows that this is the case? You know, when you see that poor little dog finally pass away. Not a yapping, annoying dog like Brother Chris was mentioning this morning that wasn't particularly close to the heart, but you know, a, a beloved dog you just don't want to see ever go and it finally goes. We don't see the spirit go down into the earth, do we? We don't actually see it. We believe that's what happens. We believe that they don't go to be with the Lord in heaven. We believe that that just goes to the earth. Likewise, when we see a beloved one A human, it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly when we see them die. We don't see their spirit go to be with the Lord. We don't get to see it. And Solomon's point, who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward? If this is true, and I think he believes that it is, we don't even get to see it. We don't even know that this is the case. God tells us that this is the case, but we don't even get to see that this is true. There is no experience of it. There are no visible signs of it. To all appearances, there is no difference between man and beast. And I think this doctrine is a frustration to Solomon because he knows it's true, he believes it's true, but he sees no proof of it. So he finds little encouragement from it. And so as usual, he turns to the contentment in the limited joys of the present. And we find verses like this scattered all the way through Ecclesiastes. Verse chapter three and verse twenty two, wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? Now Solomon is right in what he says here, but he's not. That's not the end of the discussion. We ought to rejoice in the present rather than worrying about the future, which is uncertain and unseen to our own eyes. We ought to do the best with where we are and stop trying to empire build for the future, trying to overcome the limitations of the human condition, which we certainly can't do. We ought to do the best in the time that we have been given for this is our portion. But I hope your spirit is yearning out saying, haven't we got something better? Don't finish there. Certainly we can't just say that we're no better to the beast because there's no evidence of anything better than that. Surely there's something better. Have we no greater hope than that of beasts? And more than that, that of beasts oppressed by those in authority. Have we no better hope than that as people? Well, that's certainly the reasons that people hide behind to say that there is no God. Look at how people are being treated all around the world and no one's doing anything about it. I cannot believe that there's a God. Look at this dear little child that died in their childhood. How is it possible that there is a God? God. And perhaps even the Christian heart sometimes asks the question, is it all really true? Well, As I mentioned before, as I promised at the start of the message, there would be two dilemmas, but there is just one answer. One answer. And it's what we might call the crowning moment. And Solomon alluded to this in both verse 17 and verse 21. I don't think it brought him as much encouragement as it should have. He says in verse 17, I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. And then in verse 21, he says, Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? The answer To these two dilemmas is resurrection. It's the answer to them both. Solomon knew of the truth of resurrection, but the hope of that truth frustrated him. The delay of the resurrection was a frustration. The invisibility of the resurrection was a frustration. He wishes he had a more tangible answer, and that's his problem to deal with. By faith, however or by hope, we can overcome Solomon's dilemmas. Because by resurrection, we can find an answer to both of the problems that Solomon had in this passage. We can find justice outside the world's corruption. When we depart out of this world, we can still hope that things will be made right. And don't we cry for it? Don't we yearn for those things? When you see someone get away with it, Don't you just hope, (laughs) I hope someone catches up with them one day. We are upset, we are angered. And we are upset and angered because we're made to hope for better. We're made in the image of God to expect the justice of God and to have the life of God. And brethren, we will have better. Jesus promises us, John chapter 5, let's have a look at some promises from God's word to encourage our hearts. John chapter 5 verses 26 to 29, Solomon asks the question, who knoweth? Well let me tell you that God knows, and he's made it very clear to us what shall be the case. John chapter 5 verses 26 to 29. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Let me say straight away that they that have done good is not teaching a works salvation, but it's teaching a works that follows salvation, evidencing that there's a real faith there. They that have done good, showing who they are, unto resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto resurrection of damnation. And I love this idea. Because the wicked person who has abused people all their life, who manages to find the safety of the grave, will one day hear God's voice. Come here. (laughs) Like the child who thinks they're getting away with something down in the corner of the playroom. Or the child out in the far reaches of the playground who thinks they've gotten away with something and the teacher calls out, Hey, I want to see you for a moment. One day, God is going to wake up those in the graves and say, i have an appointment with you today. That's the hope. (laughs) That's what we need to think about every time we see those people in those horrible countries where governments are turning away the needy. Where those who are innocent are suffering for wickedness. That's what we need to remember. One day, even if they find the safety of the graves... (laughs) God will call them forth and judge them. When God assumes the place of judge, not necessarily in this life, but in the life to come, justice and righteousness will replace corruption, will replace iniquity. God's promise, if we think about the logic of this, God's promise is not nullified or even minimized by the hopelessness and the dejection that we feel in our present judicial systems. Just the idea that justice is not being done now does not prove that there is no God. There is no logical progression that takes us there. And the idea that we have a yearning in our hearts for justice that is not being done here in fact suggests to us the existence of God. And so by resurrection, we find justice. Secondly, the answer to the second dilemma, by resurrection, we find life. And a life that is different to the death of the beasts. Turn with me as our final reference to Psalm 49, please. Psalm 49, and we'll read from verses 12 to 15. Psalm forty nine twelve Nevertheless man being in honour abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This is their way, sorry, this their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. Like sheep they are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. It's exactly what Solomon's saying, isn't it? Praise the Lord. David goes on to say the next verse, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave for he shall receive me. There is a hope of resurrection here that the soul, though it goes out of the body, shall be once again united with the spirit and the resurrected body to be with God and not only be in God's presence, but be received by God. Not only present with God, but welcome with God. What a wonderful thought. And so to answer Solomon's frustration, God knows that our souls and spirits will go upward and that our bodies will follow. God knows that. And God has made abundantly clear in his promises to us through the word that we should know that as well. We might share in the frustration of not seeing We might wish we had more proof, but it's adequate that God promises. It is adequate. God will gather us together from the particles of the dust. He will give us breath once again, and then he will make us not just uncorrupted, but incorruptible so that we will never corrupt again. And so Solomon had two problems, corruption, and death and there is one solution to both of those it is the invisible but the reliable resurrection it will be far longer lasting and even more escapable than the human condition we find ourselves in at the moment and so we can hope in these wondrous things that are assured in the word of god let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to your word, Lord, and despite everything that we see, we can trust that one day you will make justice right as we look for that to happen, and we can trust, Lord, that one day we won't have to die and decay just as you planned at the start. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to take, uh, take hope from your word, and we pray that you would help us to answer those who might cast aspersions upon your name and upon your existence, Help us, Lord, to show them the truths of your word and that these desires for justice and for life are evidences that we are made to look for more than this life. Father, we ask that you would please bless our closing now in Jesus' name. Amen.